0: I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am blessed with the hallowed honor of engaging in dialogue with Karen Eccles and Debbie McCollin. We will be discussing their edited volume, World War II and the Caribbean, published in Kingston, Jamaica, by University of the West Indies Press, 2017. Dr. Karen Eccles is a librarian in the West Indiana and Special Collections Division at the Alma Jordan Library of the University of the West Indies St. Augustine Campus in Trinidad and Tobago. Dr. Debbie McCollin is a lecturer in the Department of History in the Faculty of Humanities and Education at the University of the West Indies St Augustine campus in Trinidad and Tobago. Thank you for this honor and privilege. It's a blessing to be together with you.
2: Thank you. Thank you for oh, having us.
0: To begin, please tell us about yourselves. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your lives inspired your interest in this book and in this topic?
2: Okay, well, I will begin if Karen doesn't mind. Um <laughs> I am Trinidadian. I live in the island of Trinidad as part of Trinidad and Tobago and uh, hail from Digo Martin, which is in Northwest Trinidad. Um, my father was actually part of the defense force of Trinidad and Tobago. So he was in the military and I grew up visiting, you know, the bases as we call them, Chagarama's base in particular, which is where the Americans, um, was stationed during uh, World War II. And so, you know, I grew up seeing so many aspects of military life, just the discipline and the pageantry of it all. Uh, and so I was very, very intrigued. And of course, I when I started my my PhD, which was focused on public health in the Caribbean, I did a chapter on World War II. And that piqued my interest even more. And it also made me realize that a lot had not been done. there there, there we hadn't, as historians, interrogated it enough. Um, and I found a way to kind of marry those two sides of myself, you know, the the young girl who loved the military um and all aspects of it, and the professional that loved history. And I was able to, you know, use that to 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 kind of focus it as a historian on on this particular work on World War II. So that's my story. <laughs> <clears throat>
3: Well, uh, thank you, Ari. Thank you for having us. And similar to Debbie, I am Trinidadian. But I have always been interested in social history, the real stories of the underrepresented, the minority, the woman, the people left out of dominant published sources. But I deliberately delved into World War stories to try a new area, you know, men's history, the political arena, combat. However, I gravitated towards the social aspect of war and realized um, that is generally an under-researched area in the Caribbean. And there is a dire need to fill that gap. So that's my um, pathway into World War II stories. And since then, I mean, everything revolving around uh, the war and uh, how it impacted Caribbean and Caribbean people has piqued my interest.
0: What are the primary themes in this book? What message or messages, story or stories does this book tell and convey?
3: Well, the book conveys uh, the varied and multifaceted experiences and involvement of the Caribbean in World War II. I mean, it discusses economic experiences, the food uncertainty, the loyalty um, towards the allied effort. It tells the story story of collapsing industries and the new industries which emerge, I mean, of labor, of human capital, and then it talks of groups such as women, uh, such as refugees. So it tells an all-encompassing, not the full story, but an all-encompassing story in a snapshot of what occurred in the Caribbean during that um, period of time.
2: Mm-hmm. And what I find very. Amazing that we were able to to do with this book is to kind of highlight the themes uh, through our organization uh, and through how we we you know broke up and divided chapters. Um, so we kind of worked together and and came up with you know three particular areas, blockade and trade, which is the first section of the book, you know, speaking to challenges and shortages in the war, how it affected trade and economy. Um, And then the second one was imperialism and interventionism, uh, where, you know, we were looking at European mother countries and their engagement with their colonies in the Caribbean and the rise of American neo-imperialism. And then the final section, you know, engagement and displacement. Right. These chapters focused on the different groups in the society, what happened to them during the war, how they handled the war, women, refugees, um, the consequences of these engagements uh, in relation, for example, to public health. So as Karen is rightly saying, you know, numerous themes we've covered and we've really tried to illuminate the contributions of and the consequences on the Caribbean um, of World War II. What would you like
0: listeners to get out of our dialogue today?
2: Well, um,
3: the main point we would like to convey is that the Caribbean was by no means silent. nor, you know, were we irrelevant to what is thought of as a generally a European war and that we have our own rich, varied history about the era as well. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, and and clearly the rest of the world needs to recognize that. um, and, And historians who are researching and delving into World War II in general, but I also feel it's necessary for us to recognize how important we were to the war effort and how much of the war actually played out in the Caribbean theater. Uh, and so I, I'm not, it, for me, it, it's clear that our people aren't aware of the significance of the Caribbean to World War II. And so it, it is, we're hoping that, you know, by focusing on this book again, that, that people realize, wait, we need to go on and, and kind of investigate a little bit more um, and, and read the book, hopefully. And get an idea of how much of a contribution we made.
0: What is your book's contribution to the history of World War II? What unique insights does the Caribbean history of the years 1939 to 1945 provide to scholars and specialists in the history of World War II?
2: So what um uh, go ahead. So I okay, thanks. Um I think this is a groundbreaking text. It really is the first volume that allows us to get as full a picture as possible of the Caribbean during the war almost in its entirety there are areas that we would have liked to have added and for different reasons we weren't able to but it's a fairly thorough fairly comprehensive work Um, what is also I think special about it is that it is an edited volume so that means that we have brought together these experts and 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 you know it's expert treatment of major issues of episodes of of countries colonies um that kind of focus that kind of in-depth focus i think is is really significant um but two things that stand out for me is that it illuminates the roles that colonies played during the war you know histories that are usually very much sidelined histories um and that obviously made a significant impact to, to this crisis. Uh, we want to make sure the Caribbean isn't sidelined as well, and that as colonies, which we were at the time, um, that all rule as fuel suppliers, as you know, in terms of our monetary contributions, sending men to the front, that it's not taken lightly. You know, Kelshaw, for instance, he talks about the fact that the war could have been lost Right in the Caribbean during the Battle of the Caribbean. Uh, And, you know, a lot of people don't know that. And then the second thing is how much the war impacted us um, in terms of shortages, rationing, espionage, you know, refugees. The Holocaust was playing out here as well to a certain extent. Um, Soldiers that were stationed here, the casualties in our waters. The impact of the war on us was extreme, um, and this needs to be recognized and recorded.
0: What unique perspectives do the history and historiography of World War II make to someone's understanding of the Caribbean during this period? Hmm.
2: Um, I think it's important for people to recognize the significant role, as I said, that we played in the war and that the scholars that are involved in the history of World War II need to focus on the Caribbean and focus on colonies. Um, There are areas that by no means have been covered in the depth that they're supposed to be covered in. Uh, Non-Anglophone territories, for instance, we highlight that in this work, Um, the history of those areas you know the dutch caribbean the french caribbean they are hardly covered in anglophone historical writings and so you know there there are specific things that are illuminated in the text there are specific things that that scholars should focus on um and it's important as we you know continue to work on world war 2 that we don't miss those opportunities and 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 miss the areas that are critical areas for understanding what went on in the Caribbean during the war.
0: Were there any topics that you wish you could have included in this volume but could not due to logistical constraints? If yes, what topics would you have ideally liked to include that could not be included?
3: Uh, yes, we had quite a bit of submissions that we wish we could have included. I mean, there were more issues on women, the media, the various propaganda campaigns. We had bits of biographical information, um, territories that we did not address. Specifically, we would have liked to see some information on the Spanish-speaking Caribbean. And, um, but based on our concept of what how we wanted the book to be, unfortunately, Uh, everything could not be included in the volume that we had. I mean, we did have plans for volume two, eventually. I mean, one very uh, interesting topic that, you know, has fascinated me was um, the fact that in Trinidad in particular, people heard um, Nazi propaganda being broadcast from South America. So they heard it through the radio stations. And um, to me, the media in particular and what happened... the media at that point in time is is an area for fascinating research. I mean you speak of the historiography and what unique perspectives it provides from the Caribbean but the historiography is not yet complete to provide uh, a complete perspective of how uh, the Caribbean was viewed in terms of its uniqueness. So I'm eager to see more being done to build historiography so we can have a better picture of all aspects of what occurred uh, in the Caribbean during that point in time.
0: Where do you situate your book vis-a-vis previous scholarship on this topic? How is your book's treatment of the Caribbean during World War II an innovation vis-a-vis other treatments of World War II in the Caribbean?
2: So There have been um, a few other works on the Caribbean prior to uh, this particular book in 2017. Uh, but they were few and far between. We have fitzroy Batiste's war, cooperation and conflict, for instance, delving into some economic aspects, largely of the war. Uh, Gaylord Kelshaw's, the U-Boat war in the Caribbean, looking, of course, at the Battle of the Caribbean, which was dramatic and significant. Um, We also have works that will focus on specific territories. You have Beverly Ann Steele's Grenada in wartime, and then you have Harvey's uh, Caliban and the Yankees about Trinidad. Uh, but as I said, they are scattered and focused on different areas. There has been a concentration as well on larger Caribbean territories, territories where American forces were stationed, for instance. And so the There's some material or there was material out there, uh, but as I said, very much scattered um, and, and not cohesive, not a comprehensive text. So that's what we've tried to do to provide a comprehensive overview of the Caribbean experience during the war. We cover, as I said, food, imperialism, women refugees, public health, the sugar industry, labor relations. In this one single text, you can find information on all of it. Um, And the work also, which is, I think, one of the greatest achievements of the text, is that it introduces areas other than the Anglophone Caribbean. Um, And so when you pick this book up, you are able to understand what was taking place in Martinique and Guadeloupe, what was taking place in, in the Dutch Caribbean as well as the British Caribbean. So we brought together as many experts as possible um, to provide as information on diverse areas and the objective was to ensure that we had a good basis, a good foundation for researchers of all topics related to World War II and the Caribbean to to, to, uh, be grounded in and to use. So no question. It is an important and pioneering text, in in our opinion, <laughs> but generally in the line of scholarship, it, it was clear to see that it was needed.
0: How did the two of you meet one another? Can you share the story? How long have you known one another?
2: Karen?
3: Well, we've <laughs> known each other certainly for more than 10 years, about, uh, you know, more than 10 years. I was... Um, the librarian in the West Indian and Special Collections Division at that time, Debbie, as a lecturer academic, she conducted research in this division. So when I, um, well, I was her librarian basically. So she would come to the division to do her research. She found out I was also working at that time on my PhD on World War Two. Of course, she got very excited, and uh, before I was finished with my PhD, she told me my next project would be a book with her. So. Uh, you know, um, amazingly, I, when I graduated, about two months later, Debbie came to me and she's like, "Karen, it's time to start working on that book." So I was in such shock because I've just I just finished a a a a. a, a given birth to a baby practically with his PhD. And then Debbie has approached me with another long-term project. But uh, it was Debbie and um, her enthusiasm and her zeal and her love for the topic and everything. And my interest in the topic, of course, we meshed beautifully as well. So that's how we met and that's how we pursued this project, which has been a blessing to us.
2: And it was a joy working together. Yes, it was indeed.
0: Can you comment on literary and artistic responses to World War II in the Caribbean? What are the most seminal examples?
3: Uh, this topic is generally not covered in our book, but um, another book came out recently by myself and Professor Barrett And there is a chapter on war and cultural expression. And um, you see specifically, well, it talks specifically of Trinidad. So you see in Trinidad that during that time there was a cultural shift from everything British to everything American, So our clothes, our dress, our music, our movies. I mean, it influenced the culture at that time. And then, of course, we had um, Steel Pan, Calypso, and we had the tents. During that time, Carnival was banned for two years, but that did not stop the tents from proliferating in terms of numbers and Americans and Calypso. And during that time, we had the famous 1943 rum and Coca-Cola by Lord Invader. And it was in 1945 that actually the steel band, the term, the steel band, became part of public discourse. Because during the war years, you saw people fine-tuning melodies and bands coming out when Carnival reopened. I mean, in 1945, we had two Carnivals. So um, there was just a proliferation of culture in terms of um, literature. We see novels that were set in the period. I mean, famous novels such as uh, Roman Coca Cola by Ralph DeBassoir. We have Guyana's Metal um, Holders with a Carib Eye. We have Night Paul's Miguel Street, mm-hmm. Sam Selva and A Brighter Sun. So during that time, offered a rich literary. Um, expression afterwards that uh, it's we're still coming to terms with. The, the, the literature of that period was just uh, amazing. you know.
0: Who is Doris Khan? Can you contextualize her?
3: Uh, she was one of my interviewees uh, for my research for my PhD. She was in, an Indo Trinidadian living in Faisabad. Um, she was made, she said her mother made her join. She and her sister joined all the girls the, the services that um, opened up for girls who went in school during that time to help win the war. But afterwards, it was during the war, she gravitated towards the nursing service because during that time, nursing um, the nursing service opened up and you had more persons entering the nursing service. So she moved to San Fernando to be closer to her work. And she talked about the her job at that point in time, did different wards that she worked in. She talked about her interaction with American military men, her shift work, her salary, which she said that um, her her meals were paid for uh, or provided by the the hospitals. So she was able to uh, save her entire $25 salary per month to help finance her husband's law studies in the UK afterwards. So she... You know, she profited in terms of her shifts and her, her employment opportunities during the war. I mean, she has passed away since. I mean, I interviewed her in 2010, but she, both her and her husband, has passed away since then. But she was a lovely, lovely, lovely lady.
0: What is your book's contribution to Caribbean economic history?
3: Um well, there are a number of chapters that deal with uh, economic development. The Caribbean, um, Chapter One, Lovell Francis. We he talked about the, the labor. Problem with regard to the sugar industry. We have chapter two by Geoff Bur- Burroughs, excuse me, who examines the Puerto Rican cement industry and the role this industry played in terms of industrialization afterwards, in terms of building roads, the bases, houses. We have uh, chapter three, Esther Captain. And um, Jones, who talked about the inverse relationship where the colonies now had to supply the Netherlands with money and food and supplies. And the dependence actually on the, on the colonies at that point in time. We see Rita Pemberton um, talking about the food situation and the crisis in Trinidad. And Jillian Matthews in Chapter 8, she talks about the shift away from the sugar industry into um tourism as the main industry for the island, which occurred during that point in time. So, I mean, in the book, it shows how the war would have affected the trajectory of economic development and how um, labor would have been affected and importantly, the changing attitudes of the labor force after the war.
0: What are some new directions in the study of the Caribbean during World War II that you would recommend students, scholars or specialists to explore based on the findings in the essays in this volume. What are some subjects and questions you are particularly intrigued by?
2: Hmm. There were a few areas that really popped for me as as refreshing um, and that, you know, needed further study. And I've mentioned before, um, just the history of the non-Anglophone territories in this work, We have Esther Captain and Guno Jones focusing on the Dutch Caribbean. Um, There's hardly work out there on the Dutch Caribbean, um, and especially written in English. And so they've scratched the surface of that. Uh, And so I'd like to see more work done there. The French Caribbean, for instance, um, the French government in exile versus Nazi control of France. What was taking place in Martinique and Guadeloupe was fascinating. They had to pick sides. They had to figure out what to do. Um, That struggle and how it impacted their relations with their Caribbean brothers and sisters and um, the United States, you know, I think needs to really be delved into what also was... um, an interesting area and a new, and it, it really, it, it was revolutionary for us in terms of um the work being done on World War II at the time. You know, now we have had a book by um Susan about the Jewish uh, refugee crisis, uh, but, and, and the internment of refugees and so forth, but that is still work that needs to be you know, uncovered, you know, raising issues of racism, the power struggles between the British and colonial governments who did not want to accept, you know, these boatloads of refugees coming to their shores. Um, it, It is something we need to think about and talk about a bit more and understand how it reflected the political dynamics of the time and the social issues as well. Um, human activity in the Caribbean, right? As a, a lot of espionage was happening, we haven't uncovered. We haven't really dug too deeply into that at all. Somebody definitely needs to write on that. Um, At one point, Trinidad was on Hitler's target list. We need to talk about that, delve into that. Um, There's work as well on smaller Caribbean territories that may not have had American bases, but were affected by the war. Shortages, public health crises you name it. Um, We don't really have those histories captured, right? Those histories captured. So, these papers, I think, have really opened a door to a lot of work. Pemberton, as Karen said, has looked at the food crisis. Women are covered nicely, um, but still a lot more work needs to be done. You have daily beans, examination of the body concept. Dr. Eccles work on volunteerism, you know my work on public health, but we really have just scratched the surface. There's so much more to be done. We've just really introduced these topics, um, and so the it's it's wide open. It's it's a wide open field, I think, for researchers.
0: This question is hypothetical and counterfactual in nature. If the United States remained neutral in World War II, how might the history of the Caribbean during World War II have turned out differently?
2: Ooh. So. This is an intriguing and a loaded question. (laughs) Um, When we were discussing, you know, the possibilities, I think Karen, you were the one that said we would be dead. (laughs) The American presence in the region um, was really cemented during the destroyers for bases agreement, which was the um, Anglo-US lease bases agreement after Pearl Harbor, where the British allowed the Americans to lease strategic sites in the Caribbean um, for 99 years, right? In exchange for 50 old destroyers. Um, And the Americans, of course, you know, capitalizing on this, um, they, they established bases and they were responsible really for securing the hemisphere. So, There was an understanding that if you captured the Caribbean, uh, you could easily get to the underbelly of the United States, um, access oil producers and refineries in Trinidad and in Aruba um, that were fueling the war. Uh, You could gain access to Central America and then to the Pacific theater of the war, which we know the Americans were fighting heavily, um, and as well as, you know avenues, you know, into South America that they wanted to protect. And so there was, they, they saw the need for it, right? It was very important for them to develop um, their bases throughout the Caribbean. And uh, we have, of course, bases set up in Jamaica, Antigua, St. Lucia, Bermuda, British Guyana. So what that meant was that troves of americans entered these territories flooded the caribbean soldiers sailors ancillary staff their officers their wives at one point um i think it was kelshaw that estimated that it was one in three persons in trinidad was american so imagine what that did and imagine what the loss of that would mean which is what you're asking right it completely transformed the culture the economy the ideology um American money flooded the islands. Men who had worked on the bases were receiving wages that they'd never seen before. And it would be difficult after they were to put that cat back in the box. So I think it would have taken us much longer to decolonize, um, not having necessarily alternative systems, for example, to model. Uh, the Cold War would have played out differently had the Americans not had a foothold in the Caribbean. Um, I know they're public health initiatives, for example, during the war as well, in terms of sexually transmitted diseases and malaria campaigns, um, if that didn't occur, right, they were so extensive, had those not occurred, we would have had serious delays in dealing with some very, very grave, deadly, infectious diseases. Um, And not to mention the American cultural influence, right, we are heavily Americanized, (laughs) Um, in particular territories in the Caribbean and you know that speaks to the entertainment industry that was strongly tied to the American presence their culture Hollywood and so it it would have been a different world for us um, had they not entered the war and seen us as a means of protecting themselves and their interests I wouldn't I wouldn't even know where to start to describe the Caribbean without the American presence good or bad.
0: Can you comment on the history of philanthropy in the Caribbean during World War II?
2: I I will answer
3: that. Um, You know, it's just when I did my research to see the kind of giving that went on during that period, I mean... uh, every little thing that people had, they would give it towards winning the war. And there was a campaign, you know, the window war campaign. So there was a genuine desire to give us pos- as much as possible, as the captain and Guno Jones, again, talked about the inverse relationship and the money that was collected and the supplies was that was sent. In Trinidad, there were over 40 associations, by women alone, that were formed to, to garner effort towards winning the war. So, I mean, women, collected things like socks, they had knitting associations to make sweaters for men fighting in the cold fronts. There were, they sent jams, sweets, preserves, uh, uh, medical supplies. At one time, in one of the newspaper reports, there was a report that they laid a penny trail and which this was trying to, tried to incorporate all aspects of the population. So a penny was not too much to give. So they kind of made a penny trail all along a street. And I mean, by the end of the day, they collected quite a bit of money. So I think, uh, and I mean Trinidad was recognized in some of the newspapers at the time. There was a canteen, um, a mobile canteen in the midst of um, a Manchester Blitz in the in London, and a report stated that the. Uh, Trinidadian felt so much pride in all of that care, seeing this canteen from the people of Trinidad written, written on this, this mobile canteen. So I'm speaking to you now, and I'm actually so moved, you know, about the, the giving that occurred, the, the concern towards people who were suffering at that point in time, and the personal efforts made to contribute towards winning the war.
1: Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
2: And I mean, that was at a local level, um, But we also see during the war, you know, foreign intervention to assist the Western East, to assist the Caribbean territories. Um, And in particular, I I draw reference to the Rockefeller Foundation. Um, Yes, based in America, but it's an international philanthropic foundation and organization. And they were greatly involved in public health, uh, particularly the anti-malaria campaign. Of course, it was focused on protecting the American soldiers that were here but it did benefit um, the civilian population. And you have them establishing, you know, the International Health Divisions, um, working in Grenada, in Jamaica, um, they actually started a mobile malaria unit for the Windward and the Leeward Islands. And so we know that that campaign was a very strong campaign and, and funded heavily um, by the Rockefeller Foundation. And it really did propel malaria work in the area. So, so we do see it you know, internally, but also externally as well in terms of, of the charitable contributions to assisting various elements during the war.
0: Can you describe the sugar crisis in Trinidad during World War II?
2: Uh,
3: uh, Lovell Francis, one of our authors in our book, in chapter one, he talked about that crisis, which revolved around labour. And the problem was that, uh, like many agricultural industries, which uh, existed at that time, labor moved away from agriculture into the new employment opportunities, which opened up with the bases, with construction, with building of, um, uh, of, of bases across the island. So we see that um, the mainstay of the island, uh, sugar, uh, we see that by 1943 there was a crisis. We saw that Britain sent out the Benham Committee, which, which no surprise, stated that labour was the, the, the problem at that point in time. We see that cane farmers who would normally take cane, sugar cane, to the factories for processing uh, were not bringing as much cane as, as they normally did. We saw that fields of canes were not being reaped so plants were going to waste because there was just not enough labour to reap the sugar canes, and hence uh, production went down. So um, Lovell argues that, I mean, in the midst of a war and in the midst of a global crisis, uh, London had, you know, that they sent this Benham committee, but it was really to maintain the socio-economic and political status quo that they saw could have collapsed, you know, uh, because of the movement away from Labour. And then the occurrences of the riots in the 1930s was very much foremost in their minds. So what would happen after the war? All of that, you know, uh, brought into the the, the Frehley-Salbury Commission in 1948, which again looked at the... Um, sugar industry uh, around that time so the crisis was alleviated as 1945 occurred because persons had to move back into the labor force but by then labor had a new mindset they saw what higher wages can do you know so there was a different type of labor force which came back into the agricultural sector in 1945.
0: What were the primary consequences of World War II for hospitals in the Caribbean How did nurses and doctors behave and respond?
3: Well, since 1939, nurses generally, globally began to receive a great deal of attention. I mean, there was a film that came out in 1940, I think, or late 1939 called Vigil in the Night, which actually glorified the work of nurses during that time. Um, In Trinidad, nurses were needed for the internment camps, in the hospitals. There were convalescent homes which opened up. Um, There were homes for shipwreck survivors. There were nurses needed for demonstrations with the Red Cross and Girl Guides for training. So uh, then we had nurses recruited, recruited for special camps set up for survivors of submarine warfare. So during that time, we saw a great deal of restructuring with the nursing service. We saw training certificates being given. We saw there were hostels being opened up. There was a scholarship fund in 1944. There was training in midwifery. Um, nurses were also given opportunities to travel for courses in public health at the British West Indies public health training station, which was set up in Jamaica at that time. So we see the nursing service being given great impetus for improvement and um, more persons entering the service during the war.
2: Mm-hmm. And in addition, um, if we examine hospitals, <laughs> we could see. Say- Uh, as we do. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. (laughs) Uh, In terms of the shortages, you know, drugs and medical supplies, equipment, the hospitals would have struggled severely in the Caribbean to kind of maintain their operations. Um, But on the other hand, you also see attention being placed on the hospitals and expansions of of, um, facilities to certain extent because of the number of casualties that particularly at a point during the war in the Battle of the Caribbean that they were seeing, you know, in coming um, onto our shores. Uh, And so we do see, you know, significant challenges, but, um, you know, concentration and attention being placed on hospital facilities. Uh, What is also important to recognize is, you know, specialized facilities were developed in the time. for example, the Caribbean Medical Center was established, you know, by the American military in Trinidad um, to deal with the sexually transmitted disease problem um, that proliferated at the time. And, you know, of course, they did only work on Trinidad uh, and Tobago, but throughout the Caribbean, they, they did a lot of testing and a lot of training. And so it's, for specialized facilities as well that you know attention, funding, investment was being given um in this period. So again, best and list of times.
0: What was the grow more food campaign?
3: Well Uh, Food, the food situation. I mean, was dire at that point in time. I mean, shipping was disrupted. Normal supplies to countries were 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 disrupted. I mean, in in England, we see that there was a Ministry of Food, and around 1940, you saw the mass slaughter in England of um cattle and even house pets because there was no grain or food to feed these pets. So there's an entire book about how animals were affected at that point in time and how, you you know, they had to to be massacred. But um, there were measures set up in Britain, price controls to regulate distribution of basic commodities. There was rationing. And of course, the colonies followed suit. So in like Trinidad, for instance, a grow more food campaign was geared towards self-sufficiency, and appreciation towards local produce and to encourage persons to basically do that, grow more food. I mean, it's parallel into a series of exciting uh, programs and initiatives taken up by women. So you saw women partnering with officials and the government at that time to execute the policies of the Grow More Food campaign. So they were the ones who were distributing seeds, who were given out rationing cards. They were the ones who actually lobbied for a training institute in port of spain to showcase to the public how to make bread with local produce such as cassava and provision and all of that and they had they capitalized in it uh, uh meaning that they actually had classes paid for classes for brides they had classes on how to cook for the convalescent um the sick so it was um the newspaper of that time they they, they showcased these women and the grow more f- food campaign on a regular, regular basis and it was um, highly praised at that time. Unfortunately, um, as 1945 came around, we went back to dependence on the um, imports and that program and initiative and creativity that happened during World War Two in terms of growing food and being self sufficient. Um,
0: How did you meet the scholars who contributed to this research? What relationships did you form with them during the process of preparing this book?
2: Well, this brings a big smile to my face and Karen's face, um, because we were so pleased to work with who we consider the best of the best, right? Um, In particular, in terms of this 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 era, this field and Caribbean history. Uh, We knew a few historians, of course, who were involved um, in work on World War II from our university and the Regional Association of Caribbean Historians. So uh, when we did the call for papers, which, of course, was an international call for papers, we made sure that they got the call for papers. Uh, But beyond that, we received excellent responses from around the world. Uh, And we had to turn back quite a few great papers that we said we would include in the second volume for sure but we had a plan for this volume so so we had to keep to the plan um and Karen and I spent many days in the library working editing writing communicating with these contributors uh it was not easy to to get this work together and to to corral all of these busy people uh and and brilliant people at the same time but we made good friends out of it and we produced an award-winning book and it was due to these contributors who were excellent in their own rights uh, and so coming together we, I, I can't say enough about the experience it really 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 was a pleasure.
0: Can you tell us about the ramifications and legacy of the Moyne Commission of 1938?
2: So um, after the crises of the 1930s, the Great Depression, and then, of course, the the labor riots in the region um, in 1937, uh, the British government, they were very, very concerned about what was happening in the West Indies and set up the West India Royal Commission, right, which was run by Lord Robert Moyne, which is why we call it the Moyne Commission. Um, And this particular commission was sent to assess the social and economic conditions of the West Indies. And it was made up of a number of experts in various fields and they visited numerous islands and prepared a fairly comprehensive report that unfortunately did not show the Caribbean or the British government in good lights. Um, It was clear that social services were poor there was a lack of representative government. There was suppressive policies, uh, and one of the main problems that they they identified was just a lack of financial support. Just a lack of investment, a lack of funding by the British government, uh, and so the Moyne Commission itself was an impetus for change. Uh, not, you know, we're not, we're not negating the impact of the labor movements and all of the, you know, the agency, the local agency. Um, that, that that fed you know, change in the Caribbean and decolonization and, and so forth and, and development. But the Moyne Commission, it showed the British government exactly what was lacking and specifically what was needed. Uh, and so their recommendations were actually taken on board to a certain extent. And it actually did lead to the development of the second colonial development and welfare, um, the passing of the Colonial and Development and Welfare Act um, and the establishment of a fund uh, that was meant for developmental initiatives in the Caribbean. So it did support the progress and revival of the Caribbean in the aftermath of the war. And what the Moines Commission is for historians. It's, it's just a lovely, wonderful treasure of a document because it we can get a picture of a, a, a critical era of upheaval and a turmoil and and what the West Indies was um, as far as possible um, in the nascent stages of the war, the beginning of this war. And so, when we do comparisons and post-war comparisons, what was going on during the war? You know, we we have that picture to turn to. So it it really um, is a wonderful document that we continue to use. Uh, of course, putting it into context as an official document and and the biases that that would be there, but you know, the records surrounding it as well, the reports coming out of it, it it sits in the Um, It contributes significantly to our work.
0: Can you comment on the consequences of World War II for women in the Caribbean?
2: Sure. Um,
3: Well, ironically, World War II was an empowering one for women generally in the Caribbean during World War II. Um, for one thing, uh, it's for the first time, Caribbean women were allowed to join the ATS, which was the female branch of the British Army. I mean, this allowed them to travel to London as well as to other islands in the Caribbean. There were organizations and associations which recruited the efforts of women, such as, um, I mean, girls in Trinidad, they got involved in the Girl Guides, the Red Cross. There was a Women's Emergency Corps, the Women's Voluntary Services, um, the Ladies had Guild. I mean, I could... I I can name quite a few more Um, groups of women, such as women in the oil fields, they got together to do knitting, to send comforts to the fighting men. So, in Trinidad, you see women uh, given a great deal of um, allowances and ushered into the public arena uh, to promote the regulations of the government of the day, which was different from the role that they played uh, previously and the gender image of women at that time uh, you see women being foremost in a global food campaign and initiating a number of innovative projects to age the population to be creative in preparing local food um of course there were women of different classes so every class's experience was different um for women of the lower classes you would see uh um an occurrence being referred to, called a servant problem, which were debates on the changing attitudes of domestic servants during that time, and it was all because that they were not prepared to accept the conditions under which they worked in 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 the pre pre war era. So now they had options. I mean, women had. Um, domestic servants they lived in. I mean, their conditions of service were horrible. The treatment of them were horrible. They were neglecting their own children at home. But now they had options. They were working for the Americans. They moved away from um, employers locally. So, um, and then there were relationships which developed as well. Uh, with foreign military men some of those were short lived so you hear references of the khaki marriages and objections by the officials and churches at that time that put a stop to the khaki marriages because the men already had wives and spouses back home so we had women being abandoned Um, and it happened, I mean some with babies but then there were those who were able to travel and legitimate marriages which occurred and a lot of women were able to travel abroad with their husbands and then there was the stereotypical image of the prostitutes during that time and of course if you listen to calypso's you would hear about uh, the fact that they were empowered power during during the war as well i mean we're not talking about the violence which occurred i mean we're not talking about the conditions under which they lived and that reality as well but generally i would say that the war provided an empowering um arena for women to you know make a living at least and for others to find a calling in service and volunteerism and to travel abroad
0: this book was published in 2017 and it is now 2023 how has your own thinking evolved and changed since this book was completed how has your thought on the legacy of world war ii in the caribbean and the Caribbean's role in World War II shifted. Have any new publications on this subject come out that impressed you? Have any new questions for further research come to your mind?
3: Well, I am still amazed at a GAPS in a scholarship. Uh, recently, I submitted a paper for publication on the war and um, one of the reviewers indicated that, you know, the paper was fascinating, it was accepted and all of that, but um, I needed to look at similar occurrences in the other islands during that time. And he asked what was happening in the other islands at that time. And there is just no published research which addresses what was happening in the islands at that time. So there is still need for more scholarship. I mean, the legacy of World War II has become for me more personal, uh, more real, especially with the current global events. I mean, the fighting in Ukraine and Russia and the breadbasket of Europe, you know, being affected. We see that the US have instituted um, food programs as well, which has continued uh, post COVID. So the severity of the consequences of the war has resonated and somehow, you know, the contextualization for me made clearer. Because of this, I would say there is a greater belief or reinforcement of the importance of our role and um, the Caribbean's role that is during that time and uh, a renewed passion to document. I just wish I personally would have more time, but <laughs> but there is work to be done, yes.
2: Yeah, and I mean, uh, as Karen said, you know, there, there are significant parallels um, and, you know, COVID-19 in particular, uh, where we saw shutdowns and lockdowns and the impact of that, you know, it, it, history, is it repeating itself, you know, um, with what happens in the Caribbean during a crisis? How have we developed uh, over time? Are we ready to weather these kinds of crises or not? You know, we're still grappling with those. I consider this text a trailblazing text. Um, and I am extremely proud of the contributors that have gone on to build on the work, you know, we have Susan moving forward, you know, looking at internment camps in Jamaica, Um, Eric doing more work, Eric Jennings doing more work on um, the French Caribbean. And so it's clear that they have seen this as a launching pad for them. And as Karen said, it's wide open. The scholarship is wide open. There hasn't been enough done in the past few years. So I am crediting those that did do the work uh, and, and we're grateful that they were part of the project and and you know have gone on to do good things. But we need more researchers. We need more people involved in excavating the history of World War II in the Caribbean. Uh, I'm just so proud to have been a part of this pioneer project. And I look forward to, in my own particular area, um, exploring the history of public health even more in uh during this period in the caribbean
0: as we bring our dialogue today to a close can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book
2: okay so i'll start um i have been working largely i've kind of pivoted away from from the war um and focusing more on my specialization of public health and looking at welfare, particularly child welfare in the Caribbean, uh, and trying to illuminate the history of the Child Welfare League of Trinidad and Tobago specifically, which was um, the pioneer organization for child welfare um, in the in Trinidad and Tobago uh, in 1918. And so I've been tracing their history, working with them to, to write their history and I've also been working on digital history in the Caribbean. You know the way in which history has been written, explored, preserved um, online, and our engagement or lack thereof, um, and the, the you know neo-colonialism taking place within that sphere, digital divides, and so forth, um, and and on where we we are in terms of. Um, utilizing that technology to, you know, expand and expound on history. Um, I've actually, you know, initiated a oral history project called Caribbean Corona Chronicles. And so that is work that kind of marries my public health work with the digital history work, where we're interviewing just average Caribbean people about their COVID-19 experiences. Uh, in terms of World War II, I still have on the table to to focus on the British Caribbean um, and to and in public health in the British Caribbean. So that that is where I am at in terms of my work.
3: Well, uh, since publishing this book in 2017, um, my mentor and I, Professor Bridget Barton we published another book in 2019, Islands at War. Um, because of COVID, it wasn't launched until actually last year. Yeah, last year. So I've. Um, since then, I am looking at uh, prostitution during the war because I want to document what happened in the post-war period, right? What happened to the same woman that were left and abandoned and, you know, to see how did they survive and I'm also working on something on librarianship because uh, that's a field I need to cover as well because I am a librarian so I am um, working on an area of librarianship but a publication there so I'm I look forward to completing this so I can get back into probably looking at a, another island and see what went on on another island during the era of the world war two period because that's my passion. And I really want to know what happened,
0: yeah. I wish you the very best. Your projects not only sound fascinating, but they are so important. And if I can only thank you on behalf of risk listeners and readers who you may never meet, but who benefit from all that you have done and are doing.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you
0: so much.
3: You. Thank yes. you for taking the time. and. Yeah. yeah, noticing our book and um, highlighting it. We really appreciate it. And thanks for, for, for you know, your time.
2: Yes, I thank you. Wonderful and kind words. Of thank you, Ari. Thank
0: you. It has been my hallowed and humble honour. Thank you. Thank you. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, I am your host on the New Books in Caribbean Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I have been in dialogue with Karen Eccles and Debbie McCollin. They are the editors of the book World War Two and the Caribbean, published in Kingston, Jamaica by University of the West Indies Press 2017. Dr. Karen Eccles is a librarian in the West Indiana and Special Collections Division of the Alma Jordan Library at the University of the West Indies, St. Augustine Campus in Trinidad and Tobago. Dr. Debbie McCollin is a lecturer in the Department of History in the Faculty of Humanities and Education in the University of the West Indies, St. Augustine Campus, Trinidad and Tobago. Thank you wholeheartedly.
2: Thank you, thank you.